Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to Grey Mirror, a podcast from MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative on technology, society, and ethics. And unlike something like Black Mirror, which just looks at the negative impacts of technology on society, we are Grey Mirror, so we look at the positive and negative impacts of technology on society. And please, if you have any feedback, reach out on Twitter. And if you like the show, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Uh, We really do appreciate it. Thanks. So today I interview Glenn Weil, who is the author of Radical Markets. He's a principal researcher at Microsoft and a visiting scholar at Princeton University. And Glenn, I think, is relatively unique because I think there are lots of folks who kind of understand exactly, or who, who I think understand what's happening in our, our macro-systemic moment right now. But oftentimes those folks don't have good solutions to it. I think Glenn has a deeply solution-oriented mindset, and he's defining solutions that are multi-dimensional, emergent, use economic mechanisms, etc. It's it's cool. So I think I'm, I'm relatively bullish on, on Glenn's ideas. I think to kind of explain them before we go into them, I think that the first key here is that he's really aware of the tech society loop where you think about how much tech has progressed in the last, you know, however many years, lots of tech innovation. And he says, like, look, we need social innovation. We need society to respond to that technology and hopefully to build a process such that society is better at keeping up with quicker tech innovation. So social innovation can happen quicker and quicker. Um, so that's one piece. And given that tech society loop and social innovation, the kind of social innovation that he's looking for is what he calls civil society which is this idea that there's a third sector, you have government, you have corporations, and you have this third sector of like, you know, not government, not corporations, but universities and newspapers and nonprofits and those kind of bottom-up emergent things, labor unions, whatever. And I think that this term, civil society, is actually pretty crucial. Uh, and, And it's cool to see Glenn kind of touch on some of the ideas that we've talked about before in the podcast, but with kind of more defined or more academic terms like civil society. We need more civil society now because, and and, and I put in the terms of institutional co-evolution, where we have the internet, we have this explosion of new institutions like uh, internet platforms, cool games on Facebook, whatever, and also meme-based movements, Black Lives Matter, MAGA, whatever. And as those things start to happen, we actually want something like civil society in this time of kind of macro um, institutional co-evolution and change. We want civil society, this third sector, to kind of outcompete and to start co-evolve for more institutional power here. Um, so thinking about how this civil society is funded is a more difficult question. This is because governments have the, a very clear system here with taxation and corporations have a very clear system here with um, you know return on investment and profit. And I think that um, Glenn's way to fund civil societies through an economic mechanism called liberal radicalism, which is essentially a matching mechanism. It says, hey, if you give to something, then the public, then other, then, then a, there will, it will be matched. Your, your giving will be matched at a relatively uh, aggressive degree. So that idea, it's kind of an economically optimal matching mechanism. And Glenn imagines this future, which is one that I, I agree with, um, in which, you know, as he says, corporations and government fade away, and you have these bottom-up organizations with entrepreneurial entrepreneurial values that are working for the public good rather than um, for, for private uh, profit. And that idea, this this third sector is saying, hey, we have the, our tech society loop, we want to, we need more social innovation, that social innovation comes through civil society, this third sector, and that it's funded through these um, this economic mechanism of liberal radicalism, that's a key idea. So, so for all of you listening to the episode and thinking in general, how do you think something like 
third the third sector and something like civil society, how will it co-evolve with and possibly outcompete things like the state or corporations or other kinds of institutions? So that's I think a key the key overview here. And I want to just say two other quick things before we dive into the episode. The first is that liberal radicalism can be weaponized. Um, and this is something that Glenn and I talk about a bit, where if you already have someone that's an institution that's good at coordinating, i.e. if the government is already coordinating lots of actions, then it can essentially use liberal radicalism to get a bunch of money from the public. Um, so, so we need to be wary about how we use liberal radicalism and using it in such a way that as it is remixed, um, it is not weaponized by people we don't want to weaponize it. And, and this is similar to this concept of, I just read Evolution of Cooperation by Axelrod, which is gives this four-step process for um, creating bottom-up coordination within any environment. It's actually a pretty crucial thing. But the thing that Axelrod says is, hey, watch out, cooperation can be good, but it can also be used for bad, and that's what we call collusion. So this is similar to like, remixing is good, we love remixing, but a negative remix is weaponization. It's similar to, hey, cooperation is good, woo, but the negative cooperation is collusion, and we don't necessarily want that. So I think that this is just a reminder that things that seem universally good, like coordinating or funding the public good with liberal radicalism or whatever, they can be weaponized. And so the question for you, dear listener, is what can or cannot be weaponized? What is safe to scale? Um, or in other words, given infinite remixes or implementations of a given idea, do all of them have positive externalities? Cool. Uh, and then the final piece here is... Glenn uses the term, kind of like how he uses uh, civil society as a new term, he uses syncretic ideas as this new term, and he uses it from a similar vein as I use, like modernism, postmodernism, and metamodernism, where you take lots of different perspectives and then create coherence among them, i.e. a coherent pluralism perspective. And this is, I think, a crucial, just a crucial mindset for our, our current world. And for me, for you as a listener, I think as you go through the world, think about are people doing using like metamodernist or syncretic ideas and if so in my opinion they're likely there's high correlation with those ideas and like being linked to positive progress for the world so think about where are the syncretic ideas where can you find them and and how can you search them out uh so that's that one final note is the radical exchange event that uh glenn is hosting is march 22nd through 24th in detroit i'll be going i think it's gonna be a great combination of syncretic ideas and people there and there's discounted tickets for all kinds of different folks so if you go to radical x change that's radical and then the letter x and then change.com or dot org or whatever uh you'll be able to find it so with that i hope you enjoy today's episode with glenn Hello, everybody. You're listening to Gray Mirror. Glenn, thanks for being on the show and welcome. My pleasure. Yeah, excited to chat. Um, so Glenn and I actually chatted at MIT recently, um, but the recording was kind of messed up. So this is kind of, for our listeners, kind of a one-click deeper on some of the concepts that Glenn and I were chatting about. But before we go deeper, Glenn, could you kind of give us a high-level overview on how you currently see the state of society and, and where uh, you know, what your goals are given how you see the world? Yeah, so I think we're seeing a pretty disturbing division politically in the world um, and the rise of a variety of sort of ethno-nationalist or um, very strongly statist groups uh, in the U.S., in Europe, etc., in reaction to the extreme inequality and concentration of power within a variety of parts of society. 
And um, I think that those movements are reacting against some very real problems we face, but they would replace one form of concentration of power with a not very different form of concentration of power. And I think what people are really looking for, and the only thing that can really help us escape our current dilemmas, is a way to uh, create a more genuinely democratic and responsive society. And we're trying to develop technologies and social ideas to enable that. Nice. Got it. Yeah. So essentially we're in a time where there's a reaction to our status quo, but that reaction uh, would just replace the status quo with something that is equally negative, perhaps like these kind of hyper-nationalist status things. Um, and you're thinking about uh, other kind of more experimental ways or whatever to create both social and technological innovation um, to replace that. That makes sense. I think when we chatted um, a couple days ago, uh, you said something that I thought was very true about um, that now is a time of kind of uh, – terrifying possibility um and i think that that uh, yeah it's from uh uh from thucydides he said in a time of terrible possibilities the terrible is possible and everything is terribly possible yeah i think i i, I really resonate with that in the sense that and i i think of i think of it from this macro perspective as abundant fragility when you think about the world as it exists today from a hyper macro perspective we're becoming more abundant but we're also becoming more fragile and i think what you're saying i really agree with that for, especially from a micro personal perspective where it's like hey for individuals as we move through the world now it's kind of it's both very terrifying for us and be like oh god like there's so much kind of intense stuff that seems to be happening and we also um depending if we don't get too kind of wrapped up in the terrifyingness we can we do have a lot of agency so tell me how do you think individuals should respond given this kind of weird paradox of terrifying agents well different individuals respond differently and they should and we need diversity within society but i think that um i feel called to try to bridge some of the divides that we have and develop new models of social organization that can provide us with new imaginations of legitimacy um, that can help stabilize uh, what's going on and bridge some of these divides and um, offer us new ways of living uh, in, in greater respect to each other. And I think that in that project, I desperately need collaboration from a whole range of people, artists, uh, entrepreneurs, activists, thinkers who share that goal of sort of refounding our sense of legitimacy in the same way that the modern welfare state did or the emergence of democracy did. Yeah, I think that's another interesting point where thinking about, you know, as you say, the, the modern welfare state or the emergence of democracy, like those are both relatively new, but also kind of relatively old um, kind of social innovations that were a response to technology changing. And so I think that, you know, if we think of ourselves in this technology society loop or technology changes society, society changes technology, I think one of your key points here is that our social innovations haven't kept up with our technological innovations. I think, as you said um, in our last chat, you said it's like evolving nuclear tech without evolving a nuclear non-proliferation treaty. So <laughs> tell me about the kinds of social innovation uh, that you're excited about, about pushing for here. Well, I think you know, one of the fundamental things that you need for a decent society and that almost every really successful uh, society of the last, you know, well, maybe forever has had is a civil society, something, a, a third sector that is neither driven by the need for profit that the capital, the capitalism is, nor is it a single constant monolithic uh 
sort of rigid state apparatus. And I, I think all of the work I've been doing is to enable the emergence of that sort of truly flexible, adaptive, democratically accountable third sector um, and to ensure that it can flourish and compete with those other sources of power. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's a, uh, and I think that that's a fascinating concept, which is that we had things like markets for a while, and we've also had things like the state and the nation state for a while. And you're talking about this third sector. I mean, could you give an example of what this third sector could look like, or or is it just purely the co-evolving process between those two other sectors, or, or how do you think about this this third sector? Well, I mean, I think there's many historical examples. If you read Alexei de Tocqueville's account of American democracy, his emphasis is overwhelmingly on these emergent community organizations that really made American democracy possible. And if you read accounts of what was strong about the period from the 1940s to the 1960s, there were many problems, uh, huge racism, huge problems for women. But the, the strength, I think, was really unions, universities, newspapers, these middle-sized organizations that were responsive, emergent, democratically accountable or competitive, and that um, sort of both responded to new circumstances, but in a way that was accountable to the people that they benefited and served. And those were all made possible by an interaction between, or almost a competition between a state and the mark and the capitalism. And those created these organizations that were then able to constrain both of them. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think that, um, yeah, having that kind of tissue in between, it's cool to, to hear about these, um, these that it has existed in the past in the form of, and I agree with you that some of these, the, the, the unions or things like newspapers or these kind of bottom-up uh, local emergent things is, 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 I think, the correct way to think about this. So specifically, I mean, you're trying to, to create one of these right now to some extent. Could you tell us more about this? Um, so Glenn, for our listeners, he's written this book called Radical Markets, which says these like five different kinds of like kind of essentially mechanism design that you could do to more uh, positively allocate public goods. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's how you describe it, but so there's that. But then there's also this radical exchange, which is a kind of an event and a movement based around some of these ideas. So tell us more about rad what radical exchange is. Well, I think that, you know, what, what we really realized is I, ideas are not enough. The ideas have to evolve. And in, in order to know whether the ideas work, they have to be tested. And in order to have people understand them, we need to learn how to communicate. And we need to imagine them to see their flaws and all these sorts of things. So just a set of ideas is, is only the very first step. That needs to be combined with a practice of how we actually live and work together that allows us to continue generating these ideas and to channel them into productive social change, partly embodied by the way that though that practice of getting it out there is itself lived. And radical exchange is an attempt to do that, to bring together academics, entrepreneurs, artists, um, activists, to all interact um, both according to these types of principles, but also to help their broader understanding and um, broader understanding and uh, social uh, movements uh, to implement these changes. 
Got it. Yeah. So it's the, the implementation of the ideas and then kind of an iteration process between ideas and implementation and the back and forth there. Do you think something that you've been chatting about a bunch is the, the kind of desire for diversity here and that you need a lot of diversity of thought um, and a lot of diversity of you know experience or whatever in order to kind of push this stuff forward. And you also just wrote something recently on your blog about kind of defining the values of um, of the values and the foundations of this radical exchange movement. And in that piece, you have like a bunch of different, it wasn't like we are honest or whatever. It was like all these different tensions of this and this and this and this. How do you think about um, making something that's uh, coherent uh, given this kind of diverse perspectives or this kind of plural perspective that you seem to bring? Well, I think that um, the power of new and fundamentally syncretic ideas like these, these ideas combine aspects of socialism and libertarianism and and so forth and in fact i think they more fully deliver on the values of each side than this traditional positions do so i think sometimes by you know going outside of the standard framework you actually find that you're able to deliver on what both sides want more completely than either side can um and so i don't view this so much as compromising between these different tensions, but rather seeing that each has an element of the truth, but that element of the truth can only be fully expressed when combined with the insights from the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I guess I just want to ask kind of like, I guess personally, I know that for you, sometimes people see you and they, and depending on whether they have a positive view or a negative view of you, they might see you and be like, oh, there's Glenn. He's like a cryptocurrency person who's super into cryptocurrency, especially Ethereum. Or they might see you and be like, oh, there's Glenn. He's an economist. He's like a market world person. How do you um, try to... Well, you're just expressing what lefties might say. I'm just as, I'm just as frequently... Um, the opposite. So I get a lot of communism. I get a lot of, you know, uh, like market design is totalitarian. I get, mm-hmm. I get all sorts of things. And uh, how do you, how do you personally kind of try to, to, I guess, like work through those or, or, or deal with those when people well, are, you un- know, I, I like engaging with almost anyone who's willing to engage with me. Mm-hmm. And I write, have written, uh, in response to many of those things, very long, um, very long uh, pieces that are entitled "Why I'm Not a Capitalist," "Why I'm Not a Nationalist," etc., mm-hmm. which basically describe sort of my responses to those sets of worldviews. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. One one final piece here on on radical exchange and kind of how you're viewing the movement. Uh, we were chatting recently about. This concept of seeing like a state and how it's this book by James C. Scott where the state kind of views things as an optimization problem and it thinks in a top-down way and it kind of ignores some of like the underlying organic um, local like emergent behavior there. And then you were also thinking, okay, like, well, there's something like Facebook, which sees like a platform and it has its like optimization functions and needs to get ROI and it has attention capital or it has like the attention economy base behind it. And when we were chatting about what is your movement and you said it was perhaps something like seeing like civil society, or I might say it's something like seeing like a multi-scale human organism. <laughs> Tell me how you're thinking about um, what, how, how you think people and how you are kind of imagining um, people should view the world that lens. Yeah. I mean, James Scott says he sees like an anarchist and I, I don't quite like that word mostly because I think it 
overstates how much we have a state right now. Um, because it, even saying you're an anarchist is a little bit like saying you're an atheist. Like there's one notion of God that you don't believe in. Um, and to me, like any conception like that is too, is privileging sort of one viewpoint too much. Like you actually, like the state is not really a thing. Like, you know, the U.S. government is some organization that's made up of all these different things and actually power is quite divided within it. And, you know, the Norwegian state rules over 5 million people, right? And people could easily move out of there to another Scandinavian country. So in reality, we have all, we, we have all these different organizations that have different degrees of uh, power. And what we need to do is recognize that in our formal institutions by actually allowing for allegiance to those variety of different uh, organizations that make up our identity and recognizing those and empowering them because that will actually create the balance between the way we actually live and the way we imagine ourselves to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also like what you said about like something like anarchy or like atheism is kind of just a negative of like being not something. And that kind of doesn't have the right vibe to it either. Um, so let's transition now to this final piece or to a second piece here about liberal radicalism, which is this paper that you and Zoe Herzig and Vitalik Buterin wrote, um, which is this great way to a great allocation mechanism for public goods. Um, could you guys just explain uh, without going too deep into the math, the kind of uh, underlying principles behind liberal or radicalism and what's trying to solve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so liberal radicalism, you can think of as an extension of matching funds, which are a familiar way of providing public goods. So for example, if you contribute to NPR or if you contribute to many other organizations, um, you often, your contributions will be matched by the government or by some philanthropist or something like that. Um, and that's a way basically of on the one hand, recognizing that people don't have an incentive to contribute as much as would be desirable to public goods that, you know, benefit many people. But on the other hand, allowing people who might know the most about the value to express their opinions. Now, one basic principle that I think most people would agree with in matching funds is that you should match small contributions more, and you should match things that get multiple contributions more than some things where there's like one person who's doing all the contributions. The problem is that um, exactly how should you do that? So like in New York City, if you give up to $100 and there are a thousand other contributors, your contribution gets matched six for one. But why six for one? Why just up to $100, right? These are pretty arbitrary distinctions. So the real, um, the real idea here is to design a system that is actually sort of optimally giving people an incentive to take into account the benefits that are derived when they contribute for everybody else. And that is uh, precisely what liberal radicalism does. Great. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, and 
I super agree with your just like, hey, if you're if you have this matching program, you you want this matching program to match small donations, not big, and you want to match lots of donations rather than just a couple, because if it's like it's a big donation from just me, it's like, oh, we probably shouldn't have the state match that or whatever. That's just like Reese's pet project. And then as you say, where you actually draw that line, this is where the economic mechanism um, comes into play. So I think that there's when you think about this, I think you and I are kind of aligned in the sense that we can see this um, matching mechanism start to provide a lot of the public goods or start to provide some public goods in kind of a crazy way where you start to match things um, in, in this kind of economically uh, optimal way. How do you think about, I guess, if you imagine the future, maybe it's five years from now, maybe it's 25 years from now of people using liberal radicalism to match public goods. What does that world kind of look like? Well, I imagine it's one where corporations and government sort of fade away. And instead, most of the things that we consume are provided by organizations that are built around the principle of sort of providing some public good to the people who participate in them. And these organizations are sort of constantly evolving as society changes and as technology adapts. But they are democratically responsive to those who they deliver value to, while at the same time emerging like an entrepreneurial organization would um, in response to changing social needs and values. Um, and everyone would be part of many of these. I, I would call this polypolitanism, because rather than being part of just one government or something like that, you would be a citizen of all of these mm -hmm. things. Um, and what, what would you name if like we have like the state or we have like corporations now, what would you, what would be the name for one of these like emergent? I think the easiest name now would be civil society, but I don't think that really captures how powerful and diverse and pervasive it would be in this world. Yeah. And I would also want a name for like an, an individual, like, like there's the, the I think a civil society could be a good macro name for it, yeah. but I'm thinking about like a specific name for one of these organizations. It's like a public good, an emergent bottom up public good providing organization. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the right good name, name, but yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and one thing that, that we were chatting about is like, um, we'll see what happens here. But part of the worry is that or like, there's starting to be some experiments run with this. And there are some cool ones within the Ethereum ecosystem that are happening now. One thing that we've chatted about is how people might try to um, weaponize uh, or, or kind of, uh, you know, leverage this, uh, this mechanism. Uh, tell us about like the existing state and why you might be worried about existing power structures leveraging this mechanism. Yeah. So I think, you know, one problem with this mechanism is that it actually kind of works too well. Um, if you're already cooperating, it can really turbocharge that um, and allow a group, if they can get sort of solidarity with each other, to extract a lot of resources from the rest of society. So that sort of coordination needs to be discouraged as much as possible if you're going to use the full force of this mechanism. Um, and so that'll, that's an important thing to sort of uh, deal with. Yeah, is, is it, the things that are already um, coordinating, i.e. something like these these organizations that currently provide public goods, if they start to leverage leverage this as well, they could get a lot of resources. Um, another piece here that you briefly touched on in our last conversation was thinking about, because um, one of the issues here is uh, the ability for folks to collude, i.e. if I create a bunch of sibyls myself or if I tell a bunch of my friends to get into this thing and, and do a lot of small donations, then maybe we can put a lot of small donations to something that, that didn't actually deserve it, but it was just because I put up a bunch of bots or I, you know, I convinced a bunch of my friends. Tell me how you're thinking about solving this with like this web of trust idea. Well, so 
the, the notion, and this is much more complicated than we have time to go into here, I think, but the notion is that we need an identity system. Currently, often you have a credential from like the US government or Facebook, but we'd like one that's more based on a social network that actually shows how it was that you gained trust in someone via some series of introductions. Um, and that trust might be quantitative. You might only give certain amount of trust to certain people because you're afraid they might abuse it. And if there's a clique of people who you all trust through one person, that will limit the total amount of trust that comes through. Um, and you might only allocate an amount of resources to a group sort of in proportion to the amount of trust you can give to them in total. And so groups that come to you via many different routes, you can give more total value to, um, but ones that are all sort of like attached to the same choke point and therefore quite insular to each other and have homogeneous interests, you might not uh, allow such trust. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, thinking from kind of the node graph theory based perspective. Yeah. It reminds me of some like some experiments in the crypto space about like circles UBI. Yeah. It also kind of scarily reminds me of uh, something like uh, the Chinese social credit system, but we don't need to go too yeah. deep into that now. Um, so as a final uh, thing here, Glenn, let's chat about – so we I know that you – you and I are kind of more into the blockchain and crypto world from a kind of social perspective, kind of a cultural perspective. Um, and one, and I think that you just have this cool perspective on the aspect of it and the fact that it wrangles with social institutions in the sense that like our existing world as it has existed or our existing tech world is mostly just advertising and e-commerce space, i.e. Google, Amazon, Facebook, whatever. Um, tell me more about what you see in the blockchain and crypto world and how it's starting to, you know, uh, interact with and rank, really wrangle with like our social fabric. Well, I think what's cool about the blockchain world is it's based on the notion that data structures embed power structures. Um, and that by changing data structures, we may be able to change power structures. Now, we think the direction in which they are trying to change data structures is not necessarily a correct or very well thought out one. But I think people are open to hearing that and to changing those data structures, maybe more towards something like the system I was describing that's more based on a social network rather than a single open public ledger and everybody being anonymous on that ledger, which I think is problematic. Mm -hmm. But as you say, yeah, it's some, one of the first times where people are really deeply thinking, okay, if we change data structures and we change the incentive systems, then we can change um, some of our social structures. And that's just a powerful kind of uh, new way of thinking. So with that, um, if you want to learn more about uh, some of these uh, things that Glenn is talking about, the bottom-up emergent social behavior, if you want to be part of this diverse group of movement, uh, this diverse movement that's trying to change the world for good, you can check out, um, I guess... RadicalExchange.org. Yeah, thank you, exactly. And uh, for, um, for students, underrepresented minorities, people from less developed countries, and people from outside the 30 largest cities in the U.S. and Canada, we, we have um, some free tickets to offer. So uh, yeah, that's available as well. I think it's going to be I'm, – I'm going to the event. It really is. I think that Glenn has done a great job of bringing a diverse set of really – both, both the awesome folks in, in the technology world who are thinking about the tech ethics piece, like Tristan Harris, but also some folks who are thinking about it from a media perspective, like Boots Riley. It really does seem, and and some that's like bottom-up in Detroit vibe. It feels like it's going to be really a really great event. So I honestly will, would recommend it to my listeners. Um, and Glenn, one final question here. How can people, besides Radical Exchange, could people like find you on Twitter? <laughs> 
Yep, at Glenn Weil. Okay, sweet. Um, well, thank you so much, Glenn, uh, for coming on the show. Great. Thanks a lot, Reese.